Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. we got stuff to give away. We're talking about the good news, about the, the good news. And you know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation about the good news with a, uh, with a colleague of mine who is a pastor and a theologian. And he, um, I'll tell you what, uh, we, we had a conversation about what it meant to be a Christian and what it meant to actually share the gospel. And he said, you know, during our dialogue, he says, every time I give an interview, I want to make sure I share the good news. And I mean the actual good news, <coughs> not the good news the way the world has it. Because, you know, in all honesty, good news is good news. And, but the good news, capital G, capital N, good news, is the good news of the gospel that we are sinners. We were separated from God. We were born sinful into a sinful, fallen world. And God recognized that he wanted relationship with us. He created mankind for relationship with him. And as a result, he uh, made a way for us to have relationship with him once again. And the way we get that relationship with him once again is by believing that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins, recognizing that we are sinful, fallen people who cannot free ourselves, and then, you know, receiving that gift, the gift that Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I I share that with you often here on the program. I've done so a lot more since March the 12th, 2018, which is the day I had my open heart surgery. Many people have commented over the past four and a half years that I'm a lot more evangelistic, especially for a Lutheran guy, (laughs) than I was in the first seven years of the Bottom Line show. And they're right. When God speaks into your life with an illness, when something happens that, uh, in my case, Uh, It's one of those things where it wasn't a ticking time bomb. I did have a couple of scares, if you will, in terms of my health not being great and my heart being defective and me not doing the follow-up to find out what exactly was wrong with it. But when I talk about surviving open-heart surgery, and I'm grateful to Dr. Aidan Rainey at Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach for not only replacing my defective uh, aortic valve, which was a bicuspid valve, so it wore out about 50% faster than... A lot of people have bicuspid aortic valves. That's the valve that shoots the blood back up uh, through the aorta once it's been oxygenated back into your system. And if it's uh, um, if the oxygenation in uh, if the oxidized rate in your blood is very low, typically it's between 96 and 100. When I was hospitalized in January 2017, mine was around 85. It was really really low. And um, they told me I was 56 at the time. And they told me that I had the vitals of a 92-year-old man who they'd be calling the family in on. It was really kind of freaky. So they got me up to snuff, did some tests. That's when they discovered that the valve was bad. It was in what they call stenosis, which means it's deteriorating. And then uh, there are two uh, uh, spots in the aorta, the ascending side on the left and the descending side on the right, where there can be some potential blockages. The descending part of the aorta um, is where what we call the widowmaker happens. If you've got blockage in that part of the aorta, then um, that's where it often goes undetected and until it's too late. In the ascending side, it's easier to spot, and they noticed that it was at about four, was it millimeters? And once it gets to five, it might burst. And if it bursts, then you go into what they call an aortic dissection, and you start bleeding everywhere internally, and that can be fatal. So um, fortunately for me, it never got that big, but still as a precaution, 
they removed that part of my aorta and they replaced it with something. It's like a Dacron sleeve or something. So I've got had a surgically repaired heart for the past four and a half years. I, when people ask what's it like in, under the hood, I always tell them, remember the cartoons we used to watch on Saturday mornings as kids? And they would show like the uh, like the covered wagon running through the west and the bad guys are shooting at the good guys and vice versa. And one of the wheels would get knocked off and someone would grab like a crutch and put it on the back and the crutch would... That's kind of what what's happening in my heart. It's not that, you know, uh, primitive. But nonetheless, you know, I, but I do realize I had my surgery five days before my producer, Tamara Camaro, and her husband, Javier, got married. I was supposed to do the wedding, uh, do the, you know, the service officiate. I couldn't do it. Um, but if I had waited one more week, if I had done Tamara and Javier's wedding, there was a very good possibility that I might not have survived it. And uh, not the wedding would be so bad, but just my heart was, it was shutting down and the blood wasn't flowing. And so I'm very, very aware of the fact that were it not for the surgery when it happened, if the surgery had not happened, if it had been delayed by even a week, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So when, it's not a near-death experience for me per se, but the urgency from that moment on for me about preaching the gospel and letting sure, making sure that people know what is going on in the world, how sinful and fallen the world is, how sinful fallen people are running the world, and how apart from Christ, you're in that same category, but there's a solution, there's a remedy, way better than getting an injection of some unproven whatever to stop a virus that keeps mutating and going around. See, sin is sin, and the antidote to sin is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's why when I talk about Good News Friday, oftentimes you'll hear me launch into one of these little homilies about the good news. But I'm concerned, and this first good news story kind of helps us to frame why the good news is so important and why it's important to tell all of the good news and the actual good news, not what people think is the good news. If you talk to most people and ask them, what is the gospel or what is the good news? They'll say, Jesus died for your sins and you're going to heaven. But they won't acknowledge the fact that we are sinful people who can't free ourselves, who sin against God in thought, word, and deed by things we do and things we don't do, things we say and things we don't say. Talk about the role that we have in this relationship, that you still continue to sin as a Christian. You don't sin hopefully as much. And when you do, you repent, you turn away literally because the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the empathy of God leads us to repentance, to turn away from our sinful way. Okay, so that is the good, 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 good news. But what if you hadn't heard that? What if you grew up in a church where all they said was, look, do you, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And you say, yeah, I do. Good, then your sins are forgiven. Let me baptize you and give us 10% of your money. A lot of people grow up thinking that is the good news. And then anything your pastor says by teaching in the Bible and quoting the words of Jesus a lot is, quote unquote, preaching the gospel. But that's really not the good news. The good news is you're a sinner. You're born sinful into a sinful fallen world. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins so that God could reconcile between himself and sinners. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. We sing it every Christmas. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's the whole point of the Christmas message. That's the whole point of the Easter message. But suppose you didn't get all of that. Suppose you didn't hear all of the good news. Instead, you just heard a little bit of it. 
And then someone comes in and says, well, now, now, wait a minute. There's more to the good news than just I go to a big Baptist church or I go to a small Methodist church or I go to a Catholic church and my priest or my pastor or bishop or whatever says that this is the way it is. No, we're called by the and compelled by the power of the Holy Spirit to study scripture and find out what the whole truth is. I love having that revelatory moment with people in the body of Christ. I remember what it was like for me growing up in the church, but not really realizing till I was 19 years of age what that was all about. I accepted God on my terms when I was a little boy, but when I became a young man, I received salvation by accepting Christ on his terms. And the last 40 years of that spiritual journey, well, 42 now, has been wonderful. It's been remarkable. And you know what is happening in the world right now? More and more people are getting real about that part of their faith, but also they're getting a lot realer about other things that have happened in the world, in their families. And how about in our nation? Have you noticed, is it just me? Or does it seem like over the past five to 10 years in the United States, The church has been at the forefront of helping us as Americans do a better job of telling all of our story of American history, not just the little bits. An excavation project has begun in a spot where one of the oldest African-American congregations in the U.S. once stood. It's the First Baptist Church of Williamsburg, Virginia. Evidently, the sanctuary of that church was built somewhere around 1818. The Colonial Williamsburg Foundation has begun this project to start excavating at the church some of the grave sites of people who were buried there. Now, why is it so important to dig up the graves, if you will. The proper term, I think, is excavation, right? Why is it so important to do this excavating project now? And what could we possibly learn about not only this congregation in particular, but American history on the whole by doing this project now? Let's talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Stephanie Cover of Cover Law has a reputation for excellence, not just among previous clients, but also among colleagues. I'm an attorney. I've had clients that have issues in the area that Stephanie works in, and she's my first referral source. First of all, the area that she works in is an area where it's not that easy to find attorneys that I feel comfortable with. I think she has a lot of empathy, which helps because sometimes we attorneys don't have as much as we should have. She's extremely detail-oriented. She's very conscientious and just does a really kind of exceptional, almost overboard job in, in preparing cases. I've never had anybody come back with any negative comments. Everybody's been very happy with, you know, her professionalism and the way that she approaches cases. Choose the personal injury attorney with personal integrity, Stephanie Cover of Cover Law, 877-214-4935. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Stayed prayed up 
It's about the Branchettes, a Southern Baptist gospel group that performed in North Carolina, has for nearly 50 years. And the, uh, the, the matriarch of that group is the subject of this outstanding documentary. The co-directors of it, Matt Durning and D.L. Washington, are gonna, or T.L. Anderson, are going to join me at uh, the bottom of the hour here. The Colonial Williamsburg Foundation has joined forces with the historic First Baptist Church of Williamsburg, Virginia, and there were three burial sites, it turns out, that were actually on the property of the grounds. And so the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation has made it possible for the opportunity to literally have an excavation ceremony to find out who is actually buried there, get a little family lineage, and find out more. This church was built somewhere around 1818, so it's about as old as you can get. Uh, Jack Gary is the director of archaeology at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. He gave an interview recently to the Christian Post and said this is a, an event that uh, is a moving ceremony in honor of those whose names are known only to God. After discussing next steps and answering questions about our work, we began the excavation process on the first of three burial sites after the ceremony that they had. We expect the work on these sites to be completed in about two months' time. We came together to try to identify the first permanent structure of the church and now to try to learn as much as we can about the people whose remains have been buried at the site. One of the oldest black congregations in the United States. And the fact that the First Baptist Church actually traces its origins back to some worship meetings that were held in the 17, 1770s at Green Spring Plantation near Williamsburg. And the first congregants were slaves and ex-slaves. And they had worship services in private. Now, when you were growing up, I mean, I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. Do you remember all the stories we heard about the quote-unquote underground church? We actually did a worship service one time that was led by our junior high and high school students and our then associate pastor, Dr. Robert Wise, at my former church, Lake Hills Community Church in El Toro, California, now Lake Forest. And I remember that Sunday night we met in the little theater at El Toro High School. That's where that worship service took place. And we were having our worship services and we were singing by flashlight. We kept the room all super dark because we didn't want anyone to find us. And then a couple of guys who were in college and a couple of police officers who went to our church came dressed as like the Gestapo or whatever. And they busted into the room and they arrested us all. Now it was, you know, for theater, of course. But they wanted to give us kids a feel for what it was like to be in the quote unquote underground church. Well, guess what? That underground church that we heard about that happened in communist countries and Soviet countries and stuff like that. In 1781, the First Baptist Church of Williamsburg became an official church and it was led by an enslaved man by the name of Gowan Pamphlet who was the first African-American to become an ordained Baptist minister. Prior to that, the slaves and former slaves came together at the Green Spring Plantation near Williamsburg and worshiped together in secret. You don't need to study U.S.-Soviet relations or Chinese-U.S. relations to get a feel for what it was like for the underground church actually taking place on U.S. soil. It was last October then that archaeologists discovered what is believed to be the first permanent structure for the congregation. They uh, estimate that it was built around 1818 and then a tornado came through in 1834 and knocked it over. You wonder why so many uh, churches were made out of bricks? Well, that's what happened. 1856, the uh, church rebuilt a building 
they met for a good almost 20 plus years without a home site and they built a church brick building for their sanctuary they eventually moved to their current location in 1956 about 100 years later at 727 scotland street williamsburg it's so interesting to think about how they have approved a proposal to excavate three of 41 grave shafts that were discovered at the site to learn more about the people who were buried there and with dna analyses um it'll take them about six months to a year to process what exactly happened on the church grounds and what happened to the people, cause of death, all that sort of stuff. Amazing, 240 plus years later, what we can find out. But here's my point about the good news, preaching the gospel and knowing its authenticity and how true it really is. One of the biggest challenges for Americans today is to know our history. Most of us know the history that we were taught but we don't know all of American history. It's kind of like many Christians know the Bible that they've been taught, but they don't really have a relationship with the Lord. I've talked to a couple of uh, Catholic friends of late who recognized at a certain point that for them, going to mass, going to catechism was, um, was pretty much what they knew of the church to be. But they didn't really understand the church because quite frankly, well, we talked about this with George Barna a couple of weeks ago here on the Bottom Line Show. George was sharing that shocking statistic that only 37% of pastors nationwide hold a biblical worldview. In the African-American Pentecostal church, it's 9%. In the Catholic church, it's 6%. And I asked him, I said, George, I know a lot of Catholics who are born again. They like to worship in mass, but born again. They understand it. Why is that? And he said, well, you know, in all honesty, one of the biggest challenges the Catholic Church has undergone over the past century is the fact that so many people are raised to be culturally Catholic, but they're not encouraged to spend time in the Word. They're not encouraged to spend time in prayer uh, in, other than just the prayers that they recite in their Masses. It's kind of like the issue with the, the Islamic tradition. There are a lot of people who will claim to be Muslim by birth. I was born in Tehran. I was born in you know, Saudi Arabia. I was born somewhere where there's a majority Muslim uh, government. So therefore, uh, we are a Muslim country. And they're a Muslim country because the majority of people live there are Muslim. So by Islamic law, they have to be ruled and reigned as a theocracy. But there are a lot of people in the Muslim tradition who learn the Arabic words to say during their services in the mosque but they don't really know what it means there are a lot of jews who understand the jewish tradition but when i had uh, attorney barack lurie in a program here many years ago he had written a book about atheism and his season as a college student of being an atheist and i i asked him what was it like for your parents who were devout jews and they said well you know we knew that he hadn't left the jewish faith and i said what do you mean you didn't leave the jewish faith you're an atheist he goes so there are a lot of jews who are atheists they're culturally jewish but they don't believe in God. Well, now think about what America would be like if we, the people, knew the full story of our American history, not just the history that we were taught. For example, I have a friend whose dad was a missionary uh, pastor, and uh, he was in the Deep South for many, many years, and so he grew up predominantly as the white kid at predominantly black schools. 
I said, well, that's kind of interesting because I grew up in Southern California where oftentimes there were predominantly, you know, white schools that had one or two black kids. And so, you know, it's the other way around for us coming up. But so we talked a lot about the things that he learned in school versus the things that I learned in school. I learned a lot of California history, California born and raised. So I know about the missions and know about, you know, but the stories we heard about the missions were all very heroic. Story we heard about California history and American history, all very heroic. We didn't hear about the struggle and the colonizing and that type of stuff that went into this. And the problem that a lot of people have with American history, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, it's, oh, well, these guys are bad, so now we need to be punitive and this, that, that, that's not the point. It's really not the point. This is not a yes, critical race theory. No, 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 not, not by a long shot. Racism is not limited to the color of somebody's skin. If you think you're superior to somebody else because your skin looks different than everybody else's, then that's racism. But there have been a lot of things that have been done, even in the name of the church, in terms of colonizing, where you know the, the, the corruption of the church and man's inhumanity against man is in full, on full display. And so maybe, just maybe, this excavation process uh, at the First Baptist Church of Williamsburg will give us a little more insight as to what it was like for the slaves who lived there, but also, too, the role that the church played, possibly, in being somehow complicit in the slave trade. Maybe, maybe not. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is going to happen, but if you don't pay attention to our history for what really did happen and only take a look at the whitewashed version or the blackwashed, as it were, you don't get the full story. Let's get some final thoughts on this in just a moment as the bottom line continues. You're unlikely to surprise Brian Edgel, a real estate broker with a law degree. Kbright Smart Choice Home Seller has sold over 400 homes, likely including one in your area. Brian's longevity in the real estate industry equips him to help you navigate tricky situations that a less experienced real estate agent might not have encountered before. Recently, a client needed to sell a home contained in a trust. With his legal background, Brian has written his own trust in the past. He's also been the successor trustee for his own parents, so he can easily explain all the confusing details to the client. Brian has sold homes in foreclosure for clients in bankruptcy. After 20 years of selling homes, Brian prefers to handle the process personally instead of handing off the transaction to an assistant because he knows how to communicate clearly to his clients, eliminating the stress of the unknown. Call Brian Edgel now for qualified guidance at only 2.9% total commission. 800-969-3992. Again, 800-969-3992. Or go to smartchoicehomeseller.com. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and we are rejoicing with the members of the First Baptist Church of Williamsburg, Virginia. It was one of the first black congregations in America, started by slaves and former slaves who kept palling around with their slave friends, because you know how slave owners used to do that, right? Where they would look at a family and say, oh, we have to release somebody. So they release the dad, the husband the father of the kids, and he would get be given his freedom, but his wife and children had to stay in bondage. So what's he supposed to do? He'd stay and work along, even though he's a free man. Or he'd try to find work in the town and probably couldn't. You know, that, that was a very real situation. So you have slaves and freedmen worshiping together, and this church was founded in the early 1770s. By 1781, it became the first African-American congregation in the United States in the Southern Baptist Church. 
in uh, 1818, they built their first building. In 1836, they watched it blow to the ground in the tornado. 1856, they built another brick church this time so they could huff and puff and not blow that house down. hundred years later, they moved to their current location, and thanks to the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, they were able to get a grant to begin an excavation uh, project. They discovered, as they were moving some things around and, and uncovering, that there are three burial sites on the church grounds. And the idea is, let's dig... What's that, the uh, Randy Travis song? We're digging up bones. Peter Gabriel digging in the dirt to find the places we got hurt. They're doing an archaeological dig. There were 41 shoots that they found of slaves or former slaves that were buried at the church that were in unmarked graves. And the idea is to dig up those who were occupying those sites. They've got three of the shoots excavated. They're going to take six months to a year to see what kind of history they can find on these people, do a little DNA search, learn the history. Maybe this is what we should refer to history now as. Maybe in the United States, it would be easier to get people to be less defensive about finding out our nation's history and the church's role in for the better or for the worse. I know our friend Bill Federer at American Minute does a great job of helping us find the good parts of world and American history. But there are some parts of it, too, that aren't so great. And sometimes they're very, very subtly nuanced. There were some great men and women of God who came and did wonderful things in the United States. And there were some other dastardly, horrible people who used the word of God to enslave and empower themselves over said people to rape and pillage, basically. Brothers and sisters, we can't go back and right every wrong. There's just no way. But we can live truthfully and with authenticity in a time where there are people who desperately need the truth to be told and for us to learn and to be instruments of justice, God's justice, not social justice, not racial justice or whatever, not reparations. Let's don't think so small. We're going to be living for all eternity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why not work for that kind of reconciliation now, knowing that we're going to be forever friends and forever family. This is an incredible story. We've got a link up for it at thebottomlineshow.com. Let's pray for those who are involved in the excavation process at First Baptist Church of Williamsburg, Virginia, one of the first black congregations in America, and what this excavation site will teach us about the 19th century church and the slaves and freed slaves who were a part of that congregation whose remains are now buried there. Hey, let's take a quick break and stay in the Southern Gospel vibe for the next half hour as well. Uh, D.L. Anderson and Mark uh, Matt Durning are the co-directors of a brand new movie about the Branchettes, a Southern Gospel choir whose story is told of in the documentary called Stayed Prayed Up. Stay Prayed Up. Uh, we'll talk with Matt and D.L. coming up next as the bottom line continues. Well, we're going to talk movies today here on The Bottom Line, but not just any movie. We're talking about a documentary uh, that the Hollywood Reporter says this is where the power of the gospel comes alive in their review of it. The movie is called Stay Prayed Up, and if you have not heard of this movie yet, you're going to want to see it after you hear this conversation today. We've got a link for the trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, Matt Durning and Dale Anderson are the directors of this fascinating story of 83-year-old gospel singer mother Lena May Perry and uh, the Branchette group that she's been a part of for such a long time. Uh, Matt and DL, welcome to The Bottom Line Show today. Thanks, Roger. Great to be here. Thank you, Roger. 
Let's talk about this. Uh, man, I want to get your perspective first and foremost, because I enjoyed watching the film so much through your eyes, as well as through the eyes of, you know, the, the members of the group. Kind of give us a 60 second overview of the movie uh, Stay Prayed Up and why this was so important for you to bring to the big screen. Sure. So um, Mother Lena May Perry, as you said, is an 83-year-old uh, force of nature who has been ministering in her community since she was really a little girl, singing in the same church since three years old. And DL and I are lucky enough that our dear friend Phil Cook, who is a music producer and uh, renowned musician of his own here in Durham, North Carolina, over many years had formed a close friendship with Mother Perry. Uh, they had performed together. And um, as the group was kind of getting to the end of its life cycle, Phil saw that it was very important to help them record a live album. It was such an important step in the canon of gospel music for any gospel group is to have that live album in the congregation, in the church, to feel the mm -hmm. spirit and the, and the congregation in the room. And so Phil went about getting some funding from the North Carolina Arts Council to make that happen. And uh, at that time, he asked us to come in and, and be a part of capturing not just the audio of that performance, but uh, to, to film it and get the visuals of the performance as well. That's how the project started. And from there, it just evolved into a longer multi-year project to, to kind of really capture Mother Perry's spirit and her life story in a feature-length film. You know, it's the kind of thing that uh, I'm sure there are parts of the country are watching this and saying, man, I, I this, this looks like it's so fun. It's so inviting. It's not really part of my background, but it really should be. DL, talk about what it was like on the filming side. I mean, you, you, were, you were planning on recording the live album, but then when the uh, opportunity for the video came, how many hours of video did you shoot with the branchettes with, uh, with Mother Perry? We shot uh, two full performances in one day at the church, and uh, man, it was it was just a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, afternoon in this really small church uh, in eastern North Carolina, and just knew at that moment that we had to spend more time with Mother Perry, uh, her piano player, Wilbur Tharp, and, and kind of understand where this, this power, this force of nature emanates from. I mean, she, mm -hmm. she just... Um, hold such authority on the on the stage, and we, uh, you know, asked to, to 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 kind of follow her routine in the week. We went to Wednesday Bible study, uh, sat with her on her porch as she called her friends and neighbors, and really showed a, a different kind of ministry uh, that is a little more quieter, that is, is steadfast, and, and all about just being there for her community and seeing her family. Uh, also be so close to her. She has uh, five adult children, and they come over to her house uh, at least twice a week to eat dinner with her mm. and still gather around the table. And it's a, it's a place that obviously she um, gets such joy from. She's an incredible chef herself, and uh, her ministry of food is quite powerful. Mm. I'll bet it is. I'm talking with D.L. Washington, Matt Durning today here on The Bottom Line. Uh, the movie that we're talking about is called Stay Prayed Up. It's a, a celebration of the North Carolina gospel group called the Branchettes and uh, Mother Lena May Perry, who's the leader of this. We've got a link for the trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com. Um, you mentioned the food aspect, and I, I, I appreciated that as well. Uh, Matt, talk about the fact that in a day and age when we have so many different options for contemporary Christian music of all different styles, rock, gospel, you know, uh, the contemporary praise, there seems to be kind of a focus on globally reaching out and, you know, taking the, the, that word of God in song to places, whether it's Hillsong or, you know, that type of stuff. This movie kind of reminds us that the heart 
of gospel music, first and foremost, starts in the local church. Talk about why it seemed like that that was one of the themes I was getting from watching the documentary Stay Prayed Up. Definitely. Well, you know, Phil Cook, as, as the musical sort of um, visionary behind this, this film and also behind his own contemporary gospel record label, Spiritual Helpline, is just so uh, enamored with and wants to help more and more Americans understand just the deep, deep place that traditional, uh, you know, spiritual gospel music, hymn-based gospel music, acapella gospel music plays in the American canon. So much of what we love about all forms of great American music from blues to jazz to hip-hop to R&B just all comes from this garden that is the old-time gospel music. And so to have these groups like the Branchettes who have been doing, creating old-time gospel music for 50-plus years, you know, anyone who's been making music for 50-plus years is getting towards the end of their life. And yes. and, and so to, 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 to capture that and to make sure we both uh, honor and revere and celebrate these sort of guardians of this, this sacred music, while they're still alive, we, we like to say, you know, throughout the filming process, we, we, our goal was to give Mother Perry her flowers while she's still mm-hmm. alive and, and let her be recognized for the great mm-hmm. contribution that she and all of the other Mother Perrys and church mothers at tiny congregations around the country have made to, you know, the history of American music. I'm talking about Stay Prayed Up, the outstanding documentary about the life of Lena Mae Perry, uh, just an outstanding gospel musician and a, a pastor in her own right. And uh, the movie is up. The link is up for the trailer at thebottomlineshow.com. The movie is available wherever you can rent movies. It's it's streamable. It is available for purchase on DVD. DL, one of the things that I, you know, sometimes you get a documentary about an artist, if you will, and you kind of get the sense that uh, it was their idea, you know, follow me around with a camera. Let's go ahead and make this, uh, you know, enough about me talking about me. Why don't you talk about me for a while? I never once got that feeling in watching Stay Prayed Up. I got the sense that you guys were invited in to watch, but she was almost, I mean, she was bold in her faith, bold in her music, but almost self-effacing when it came to, you know, her talking about her. It was very matter of fact. Talk about what that process was like for you as a filmmaker, a director. Absolutely. Mother Perry, uh, she approached this project uh, with uh, the, the kind of deference that if, if we wanted to do this, uh, that's fine. But she's going to first and foremost put God and her ministry uh, out front that, you know, she says if, if, if that's not happening, if, that's, if, if, if she is standing in front, then she needs to go ahead and sit down. Right. Mm. And she, she is clear about uh, what she is here to do. And throughout the process, um, that was, that remained the case. She's just so steadfast in her faith and in her work. So if we wanted to follow her around and ask her questions, that'd be all right. But it, it was never, uh, an an ego driven project for her at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, And that it's amazing how the world has a hard time distinguishing between confidence and arrogance. And, this movie, you could see the joy of the, you know, I mean, you could, you could see the confidence part with her, but that confidence part was in the fact, uh, Matt, you know, that she says, uh, one of the quotes in the movie, uh, that she refers to music as medicine. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's something that it's not for just purely entertainment, though it is uplifting and fun to watch. Uh, talk about why you think that her music in particular, but music on the whole does really have that kind of medicinal healing, restorative quality. Yeah, Roger. There's, I think there's so many reasons. There's a great quote that's in the film. I think it's in the film. Sometimes I have trouble remembering what is in the film and what we just you right. know, left on the cutting room floor. But Phil, Phil has a great quote where he talks about the presence of an artist's 
of any musician when they're on stage, if they are truly present and truly believable, that they just can transport you to, you know, transport you through time and space and kind of create a universal vibration that gets everybody in the room onto the same page because you believe them no matter what you think in your life, in your own religion, in your own worldview outside. If, if that person is really pure and true in the way that they're presenting, it just gets everybody onto the same page. And Mother Perry has that, you know, she, she performs in front of, uh, uh, middle school children in, you know, very white towns in Wisconsin. She performs at obviously churches in, in the deep South, uh, in African-American communities. She performs, uh, you know, on stages at the Kennedy center in New York city or, or the Lincoln center and, and everywhere she goes, she just, she just captures, um, you know, this, the, the, the energy and the focus of everyone in the room. And she just has so much transcendent power in her performance because it is so pure in where, where it's coming from. Well, we're talking about the uh, per the performance of Lena Mae Perry, who is the central focus of the brand new documentary called Stayed Prayed Up. We've got a link for the trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com. D.L. Anderson and Matt Derning are the co-directors of this outstanding documentary that I highly recommend. And we're continuing our conversation with them about this on the other side of this break. So keep it right here as this edition of The Bottom Line Show continues. By investing in the Wilson Financial Services 4D or four-dimensional account, your investment is guaranteed against loss. It provides long-term care benefits, permanent income benefits, and inflation benefits all at the same time. You know, I had a client come in this morning, and the first thing he asked me was, tell me about 4D money. And I said, well, 4D money is a fun thing. It's exactly the opposite of what you have now with your one-dimensional account with Ameritrade. You've been watching that thing drop like a rock since the first of the year. You're probably fed up with it. I said, this account, number one, the money never goes down. Number two, it has inflation benefits. Number three, it has long-term care benefits. Number four, it has permanent income benefits. And so when you put all these things on the same page and show it to a client, it sounds too good to be true. And that was his comment to me. I said, well, you know me a long time. You know it's true. I don't make stuff up. So he met with Tess, and we moved his Ameritrade account in a matter of 30 minutes. Ask Dennis Wilson and his team at Wilson Financial Services to explain the four dimensions of their 4D account. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. Continuing conversation today here on The Bottom Line with Matt Derning and D.L. Anderson, the co-directors of the outstanding new documentary about the life and music ministry of Lena Mae Perry. Uh, the movie is called Stay Prayed Up. We've got a link for the trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com. It's now available wherever you stream movies, wherever you uh, rent them. Uh, you can purchase the DVD. We'll have all that information up at thebottomlineshow.com as well. Uh, guys, I'll throw this out for either one of you. Uh, the, the title, Stay Prayed Up, for the listener who hasn't seen this yet, talk about why that was important to call this project by that name. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. So uh, the, the film opens with a prayer, and it closes with a prayer. We also have a prayer in the middle. And that's just simply because Mother Perry does a lot of praying. And mm. she... Growing up, used to hear her mother say uh, that you never really know what's going to happen day to day, and so you better keep yourself prayed up. Mm. And that is how she moves through her life. And and would we would pray before any shoot, uh, any any meal, of course, uh, which is a whole other art form here in the South. Yes. And uh, you know, she prayer is a, is a pretty special thing to share with other people in community. We were glad even in the, in the, in the pandemic, uh, we kept filming, kept working with people to get the opportunity to hold hands and, and say a prayer and, and kind of circle around and focus in on what we were doing. So, um, yeah, this, this film itself is, is, a, is a beautiful prayer. 
Talk about what that was like, guys, to film during the pandemic, because we've, we've seen a lot of projects that started and then had to stop or they had to do, you know, uh, they had to be rather creative to keep things going. Uh, did you start shooting during the pandemic or was that something that became a, an occupational hazard once you'd already got the cameras rolling? Roger, we, we began filming, lucky, luckily enough, pre-pandemic. So the main concert uh, rehearsals for the recording of the live album and a lot of the group scenes uh, you will see in the documentary were all filmed in 2019 prior to okay. the pandemic. But when the uh -huh. pandemic did hit and we had to lock down, it definitely changed our thinking about where where the film would go and what we'd be able to do um, with the film. But I think in a lot of ways it actually proved to be to our benefit because it narrowed our focus and it allowed us to spend a lot more just one-on-one -on -one time with Mother Perry. Mm -hmm. And so, so many of, I think, the most powerful scenes in the film outside of the performance are the scenes where you're just with her, whether it's quietly, uh, you know, on her front porch, like D.L. mentioned, calling and ministering to her friends and, and uh, neighbors. Um, just, you know, a lot of those quieter moments in the, in the film are the things we were able to do uh, during the pandemic. And then it also allowed D.L. and I time to just focus on the edit, on editorial process and kind of lock ourselves in a, in a room together for long stretches of time and really hash out how the story was going to come together. The movie, the version that I saw of it went just a little over an hour. It's a good documentary length. Um, talk about how many hours you had to shoot to give us that nice, tidy, you know, 60 to 75 minute production, guys. How many hours do you think we had, Matt? <laughs> I, I, I can speak in terabytes, which I realize is a, a, most, uh, a, unit, a unit of measurement that most average folks don't know about. I would say we probably shot you know, 50, do you think 50 to 100 hours is a good yeah. estimate, DL? 50 hours? I mean, there was a lot of sh filming at the church in the week of rehearsals leading up to the concert. Um, that's where we were kind of the ratio of what was filmed to what was used was probably the, the, the lowest, right? Because we were filming all yeah. day, every day while they were rehearsing. Beyond that, we were quite, um, we had a, we had good precision, I think. We were fairly efficient in the in the number of scenes and interviews we filmed relative to what you see, but probably, you know, you're always, there's always scenes and moments and, and, and stories that get lost on the cutting room floor that we were sad to yeah. miss. And hopefully someday we'll be able to release some of those, uh, you know, deleted scenes. But yeah, it was probably somewhere in the order of 50 to a hundred hours of footage, I would say. Well, I'm, I'm laughing at myself for asking about the time component because I could have said, how many reels of film did you go through? But uh, maybe that, that would really date me even more. So I, I won't put it that way. Uh, D.L. Anderson, Matt Durning, the co-directors of the outstanding new documentary called Stay Prayed Up. We've got a link for this movie up at thebottomlineshow.com for the trailer. And uh, we'll be giving away a copy on uh, DVD here in just a moment. Um, D.L., let me ask you this question. We were talking during the break about the fact that this is something that uh, you really want to, you want to, I watched it by myself on my computer because that's the way I preview movies and things like that. But there are certain movies I know in our family where we'll, the, the deciding factor is, is this something we have to see on the big screen or can we wait for it to come out and watch it on, you know, 50 inches at home? Mm -hmm. uh, stay pray, stay prayed up, played very nicely on my computer, but I would imagine this is the kind of film that you really want to see with a group of people. Talk about that. Absolutely. The uh, screenings that we've had in packed theaters uh, have been electric. That the people are singing along uh, for many of these songs. It's a chance for people to, uh, you know, connect with their elders. This is old time gospel. This is, um, you know, songs that people knew growing up, growing up, but maybe don't have a relationship with anymore. So 
certainly there was a lot of singing and clapping along and stomping, even if you don't know the song, um, to share them with your uh, loved ones, your family, your friends. I think everyone leaves the theater uh, or the experience itself feeling just lighter. Uh, it's feeling a whole uh, bit of, as you say, you know, that dose of medicine uh, works best when multiplied by the number of people around you. So mm-hmm. I, I really encourage folks if they, if they want to check out the film to invite um, you know, folks over to see it. And we want to also make sure to let our listeners know that we are um, making the film available for events and church screenings. Mm. So if you uh, have a program existing at your church or community uh, uh, event center or wherever you gather that, that a film makes sense, uh, we've partnered with a wonderful organization called Kinema, and that's K-I-N-E-M-A, uh, and they have um, a really cool platform to basically host a screening, uh, to receive a copy of the film and uh, cover um, all the promotion and, and really help make for a successful screening event um, in which you can, can uh, even go bigger in your living room if you if you so desire and bring it into uh you know church fellowship halls or wherever folks are gathering and um you know it's packed wall to wall with music i think we have uh something like 32 different songs in mm. this 72 minute film mm-hmm. so it is a it is a high energy fast moving experience that i think everyone comes out feeling a little bit lighter See, and I didn't even realize there were that Roger, many songs in it until I was reading the credits. That's a that's a lot of work. Matt, go ahead. You were going to say. No, just to add on to what DL said, um, you know, really from the beginning, as we were kind of reaching the edit, the end of the edit of this film, we always had as our main goal with the film to to have it be screened at churches and in faith based communities around the country to really celebrate and uplift the power that uh, gospel music has had and the contribution that it's made not only to American gospel music or American music in general, but also just to American culture and to, you know, the, being the fabric and sort of the cornerstone of community, the way that um, Christianity and sort of expansive love uh, works best person to person. I mean, what we haven't talked about on this call yet is just that Mother Perry's ministry is really about expansive love. She really is led by the idea that she loves everyone and that she needs to love everyone, because if she doesn't love everyone, she's not going to make it to heaven, and that's her goal. Mm. And so in an age when there's so much division in our society and so much you know, meanness and darkness all around us, to have someone who really leads by example of, I love my enemies as much as I love my friends and, and family, and, uh, you know, to have that, that spirit in it, captured in a film it's really powerful, and to see that in a theater with other people, you know, people leave crying tears of joy, hugging hugging strangers or hugging neighbors, you know, picking up their cell phone and calling their grandma to tell them they love her. So it just it just it, it's an outpouring of of love that comes out of this film that is really best shared with people you care about. How what kind of impact did it have on you guys? I mean, in terms of uh, you know, you've talked about your your love and appreciation for her ministry, but as you were making the movie? I mean, did, does this have any kind of impact on your lives individually or your faith journey? Matt, I'll start with you since you were just uh, talking here a moment ago. Talk about how Stay Prayed Up has impacted you. Oh, it's, I mean, Mother Perry has impacted me in so many ways, both she and uh, Wilbur Starr, her pianist. Just such beautiful souls, and again, people who um, take the time every day to express gratitude for what they have in their lives. And I think for me, as a as a, a young 
parent, as someone who's very career driven, it's so easy to just get caught up in the grind of day to day of what you have to do to, to focus on your failures more than your successes. And so to be put back in this place where, especially through prayer, through shared prayer, these moments that Mother Perry would create for us, you know, at the beginning and end of every day to just hold hands in a circle and silently express gratitude for what we had accomplished that day or what we had shared, that we had had safe travel and mercy on our journey to where we had to go, that we were breaking bread together. You know, just that, that daily affirmation of gratitude is something that I, meant so much to me, especially during pandem- the pandemic years. But um, uh, just, I've continued that into my life to really stop every day and, and feel gratitude and see my faith really as, as something that's built around gratitude for the people I have in my life. D.L. Anderson, how about you? How did this project impact you? It was, it was immensely important um, in, in giving me strength to overcome some personal health trials at the time and, and to really, uh, echoing Matt here, just see that uh, the community we keep and the, and the relations that we grow um, day by day are really uh, such a, a, a source of strength and, and calming uh, grace. I think that um, I've, I've put a lot more um, focus on that and, and, and less about things that I, I can't control, um, you know, and that's, that's such a wonderful testament to, to, to Mother Perry and, and her community around her where, you know, we, we call her Mother Perry and that's, that's, that's an honorary designation in, uh, in her church, right? That there is a church mother, someone who is mothering and caring. Um, and it also extends far out into all kinds of different communities and, um, you know, giving, giving room to call, call my own mom or, or give gratitude for those mothers in, in your life that are uh, guiding and growing and tending to, to so much in our, in our culture and with our communities, um, you know, giving space for that and, and uh, gratitude for that is, is now so much more of my uh, daily routine. Yeah, well, I, you could tell. I mean, I could, I could tell just in the way uh, your countenances are on the phone here in our conversation. But also, you could see that the love and care that you experienced from her and are giving back now to your audience in this great new movie, Stay, Stay Prayed Up. It's very, very evident. Uh, D.L. Anderson, Matt Durning, the co-directors of the brand new documentary uh, on the life of Lena Mae Perry. Uh, Mother Perry's story is told in the documentary called Stay Prayed Up. And we have a link for the trailer up at the thebottomlineshow.com. It's streaming everywhere. And I highly recommend you bring this to your church or your Christian school or even just a community outreach if you're involved in that as well. Uh, D.L. Anderson, Matt Durning, thank you so much for the great work you've put in on this project. And thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thanks a lot, Roger. Thank you, Roger. And, and folks can also go to uh, stayprayedup.film uh, for more information, for all the links to um, any anything related to the film. Uh, and, and thank you for the opportunity to share it. Great conversation and a great movie, too. Stay Prayed Up is available wherever you stream or rent movies. More to come in just a moment as the bottom line continues. My thanks again to D.L. Anderson and Matt Durning, the two co-directors of the outstanding new documentary called Stayed Prayed Up. Uh, Stay Prayed Up. I, I want to say Stayed Prayed Up. Stay Prayed Up. We've got a link for the trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com. Stay Prayed Up is a great phrase. 
you know, and I don't know how you could ever be prayed up enough. You know, I mean, if you could have that kind of faith. But the idea is that it's a constant state of prayer. And the fact that the Branchettes and Mother Perry were so, and, and still have been, continued to this day, to be so encouraging to people. And I, the thing I love is the fact that they take the attitude. You know, if you know what it's like growing up in the South, growing up in areas where, uh, you know, the history hasn't been great toward the African-American community, to see a woman like Mother Perry and the Branchettes doing what they're doing and showing the love of Christ wherever they go. You know, doing so, they'll, they'll tell you, oh, well, the reason we're doing this is because, well, you know, I mean, this is a, uh, uh, you know, this is a, we, we want to, you know, get as many people to heaven as we possibly can. We want to be doing God's work, um, you know, as, as much as we possibly can as well. Um, you know, one of the keys to this, though, is um, the fact that the idea is we don't want to miss anybody with the gospel. We absolutely don't want to miss anyone with the gospel. We want to show the love of Christ to everyone. And so that's why I, you, you watch this movie, you're going to come away with that same feeling I did that said, oh yeah, that's the kind of faith I want to have and that's the kind of faith I want to live. D.L. Anderson, Matt Durning, the movie about the Branchettes, it's called Stayed, Prayed Up. KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your Good News Friday. Uh, Rabbi Schneider coming up next with Discovering the Jewish Jesus. For those who remain on the network, more good news, including a controversial decision that looks like now it isn't going to be quite so controversial. Do you think Planned Parenthood should be allowed to set up, set up Planned Parenthood clinics at local high schools? We'll talk about this one scenario coming up next as the bottom line continues. Good news, good news, good news. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marshall on this Good News Friday. Remember the good news is we had the conversation last half hour with Matt Durning and also D.L. Anderson, the two co-directors of this great documentary about the Southern Gospel group called the Branchettes. The Branchettes are such an inspiration, um, even if you don't like what people used to call old-time black Southern Gospel. Uh, you will be drawn into this film. The fact that the, the Branchettes have had such a lengthy more than 50 years worth of ministry, the fact that the food and the restaurant that the, is operated. Well, you just have to watch this movie. It takes about 75 minutes, a little over an hour. And uh, you can rent it wherever you can uh, rent movies. You can stream it. Uh, it did have a theatrical release. But now when you go to their website, which is linked at thebottomlineshow.com, if you want to show this at your church, um, if your church has a school, I highly recommend you show it at the school. Um, once you watch it, you'll know why. But uh, anyway, find all that information at thebottomlineshow.com. I should also mention that rogermarsh.com has TBL stuff all linked there as well. Um, and so there you have it. <laughs> it's a great it's a great film. You know, one of the things that has been so intriguing to me over the past, oh, I don't know, four decades, I, basically my adult life, is the number of people who have the education, have the knowledge, should know better, I guess, um, and don't, even though it seems like the more education they have, the less common sense they have. We've talked about this continuum before, haven't we? You go from data to information. Data is just the raw whatever. You know, when we do an analysis, balance, and clarity segment here on the Bottom Line Show, we look at all of the information that's coming our way. We get as much of the information as we can. Well, that information comes from data. The data doesn't mean anything. It just tells us what's going on. The information gives us kind of a rough outline of how it all 
comes together. Then we are able to glean knowledge based on the information that we've compiled from the data. And it tells us what we want to know about whatever it is. Now, how that knowledge is then applied is referred to as wisdom. And all throughout scripture, the gold standard, if you will, though sometimes I think it's referred to as precious as silver as well, is, is wisdom. Wisdom is the end all be all. That's the uh, Pasco collect $200. It's the whole bit. And so the idea is that when it comes to, say, the educational system in the United States, kids go and they take the data that has been compiled and put into basic information and they learn the basic structure at first. That's why we used to have grammar school, as we called it. I thought, well, grammar, so what? I mean, I, I, I have good grammar. Why do I need to go to school? Well, grammar is where you learn the basics, right? That's where you learn, what do you call it? The three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. The basics. That happens from what we would call kindergarten all the way up through fifth, sixth grade or so. And then you get into the next level of education, which is the logical stuff. That's where you take the data that becomes information and you turn it into knowledge. So instead of just doing addition and subtraction, you start learning algebraic expressions and you do multiplication division and kind of use it overly and combined and whatnot. That's where you don't just start compiling data in science, you start asking some questions, coming to what we would call logical conclusions. Once you get to the end of your high school years and early college, then you get into what we call the rhetorical phase of learning. And in the rhetorical phase, a lot of people, rhetoric has a bad rap in this culture because people use rhetoric today, I believe, inappropriately. A rhetorical conversation is is based on a precipice, a principle, if you will, that does not have a logical explanation. So you move from A plus B equals C, or if A equals B and B equals C, then A plus B, that type of stuff, logical progressions, to start asking questions like, how high would I have to get up in the air? And how fast would I have to be going? How heavy would the plane have to be or the machine have to be to engage in air travel? Those are rhetorical questions. Until anybody did it, it was rhetorical. Once they figured out how it worked, it became logical. We trust people as our students, as our kids and grandkids get into the older years. We trust that those who are educating them are taking them down through those three paths that they need to go through. Uh, Preschool age all the way through fifth grade or so is the grammar school time. Sixth grade through 10th or 11th grade, maybe 9th or 10th grade, is what we call the logical time. And then that other grade, all the way through the early adult years, is what we call rhetorical uh, learning. And the idea is that when you have people teaching there, they've gone through college and grad school, they have the certification to actually be the people who will teach your young people how to grow up and to be an adult. Now, there's a situation going on right now at John Glenn High School in Southern California that has showing us that when it comes to higher education, there's been a huge dumbing down, not of the students, but of the instructors, of the faculty, of the district monitors themselves. And may I give you an example of what I'm talking about here? Okay, set your mind back to when you were in middle school. 
maybe at the end of grammar school, fifth or sixth grade, there was, quote unquote, the talk. Everybody knew what the talk was all about. It was a talk that they gave you in science class or in gym class or whatever it was about the differences between boys and girls as they got older. The secondary sex characteristics that would happen. Girls would develop breasts, boys would get pubic hair, blah, blah, whatever it was. And then <laughs> once you got into middle school, then you had the video you know, that, that went along with the talk. It went from the basics to this is what sperm and eggs and erections and all that stuff is all about. And then you got into pregnancy, childbearing, child rearing, and what it meant to be a parent. The whole point was designed to be age appropriate and to teach young boys and young girls who were becoming young men and young women where babies came from. That was it. Nobody was trying to tell you how to do what with whom, at what age, what your religious background was. No one was trying to do that. It was all purely scientific, biological, anatomical, physiological about where do babies come from. Well, then the sex revolution happened in the 1960s, the 1970s. And something happened in the 1970s, like when kids like Roger Marsh were in middle school. You know what happened? The teachers called it life science, but the students started calling it what? Sex ed. And you know why? Because, uh, well, they talked about sex. (laughs) They talked about having sex. It was very matter of fact. When a man and woman engage in sexual... Oh, wow, they're really talking about that. Now, they didn't show us any videos or anything like that, but it was explained that God... Well, they didn't tell you God, but it was explained that the bodies were designed to work perfectly together. And the purpose of this, or one of the purposes of this activity, was procreation. Big $64,000 word that means you're going to have a baby. You can make babies by doing this. So you... No one talked about how pleasurable it was. You didn't have to tell a bunch of giggly 12 and 13-year-old boys that sexual intimacy was pleasurable. We'd heard from the big brothers and the older guys in the street and locker room talk and Little League and Pop Warner and everybody talked. You get it. I mean, and I, we just assumed the girls were having the same kind of talk, Right. Roger, you said Good News Friday, so why the big buildup with sex and sexuality? Okay, back to John Glenn High School in the Norwalk La Mirada Unified School District, right near where I grew up. The school board there has decided to postpone a discussion and a vote on opening a planned parenthood clinic on campus at John Glenn High School. Now, why in the world would Planned Parenthood need to have a camp, a clinic on campus? Let me count the ways. And we'll do just that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Do something productive with your money over the next three years. Invest in Dennis Wilson's real estate-backed 6% CD alternative. You know, with the current administration, you've got three things that you can do. You can stay in the market for the next three years and watch your account go up and down and see what happens. 
Option two is take your money, put it in the money market, hold on to it, and hope that the Fed raises interest rates. Or number three, you can put your money into our exclusive 6% account. You've got your money safe and sound in a hard asset over the next three years. At the end of three years, you evaluate where you want to be. You want to try the market, you go back. You want to put it into a CD, you go back. Or you just want to reinvest for another three years at 6%. But in the interim, you have made 6% for three years instead of zero. Instead of riding the up and down elevator of the market or leaving your money in the bank earning nothing, you can earn 6% over the next three years guaranteed with Wilson Financial Services. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Varsh, and the good news for this half hour is that the Norwalk Lombarada Unified School District in Southern California is not going to put a Planned Parenthood clinic on the campus of John Glenn High School. Now, you might be asking yourself a couple of questions. First question would be, why on earth would high school students need an abortion clinic on campus? That's a very fair question. Secondly, why wouldn't they need one on campus? Third, isn't Planned Parenthood a medical clinic? Wouldn't it make sense to put something there, and that way the school doesn't have to interfere with kids making private and personal decisions about sex and sexuality? Well, let's cut through the rhetoric, shall we? First, Planned Parenthood likes to bill itself as a provider of quote-unquote health care. Somehow, through effective lobbying and petitioning of government officials, Planned Parenthood was able to qualify for something uh, known as the designation of a federally qualified health clinic. A fe- federally qualified health clinic, FQHC, is a designation given to health clinics that provide uh, medical services in out-of-the-way areas or for low-income residents. A federally qualified health clinic, for example, in a rural community is basically their general practitioner doctor and kind of pseudo-hospital all rolled into one. There are approximately 14,000 federally qualified health clinics and healthcare clinic affiliates in the United States of America. 665 of them go by the name of Planned Parenthood. Now, when you see what Planned Parenthood has to offer those looking for a federally qualified health clinic, and when you see how many people don't realize what Planned Parenthood does in fact offer as an FQHC, then you'll be asking yourself the question, why on earth is Planned Parenthood a federally qualified health clinic? Well, the reason they are is because of good lobbying and the fact that, oh, by the way, they will do a pap smear for a woman who asks for one. They could do a pseudo, well, it's really a referral for a mammogram or a pelvic exam. They could also do a pregnancy test. They can also refer for a mammogram. If you need to get your birth control, you can get that through Planned Parenthood. And now you can get your cross-sex gender reassignment hormone treatments at Planned Parenthood so that you can effectively sterilize your body as a man to try to turn it into a woman where you will never, ever, ever, ever give birth. And you can do all of that at Planned Parenthood. I read a rather frightening account of a, a young woman who uh, tried to transition to being male and tried to eventually wound up transitioning out of that. And she said when she went to get her testosterone, she was getting it at Planned Parenthood, and they gave her so much, the maximum dose of male hormones, every time she went in, she wound up being hospitalized. Planned Parenthood has no business there, you say. And yet, what has Planned Parenthood been doing over the past 
25, 30 years. Well, when they first started out, it was a license to print money. Now abortion was legal. They started providing abortions for legal abortions, charging a lot for them, and making a lot of money. Planned Parenthood will tell you that the number of of procedures that they perform that are abortion-related is only 3%, but that's because they don't count the medical abortions, to my knowledge, as abortion. They call that contraception, so it's like they're giving out birth control pill, number one. Number two, if a woman comes in for a pregnancy test, a pap smear, a pseudo-breast exam before she gets referred for the real one, a pseudo-pelvic exam before she gets referred for the real one, and then they figure out what kind of birth control she should be on, and then give her a year's supply of birth control, they could charge that woman basically for 18 different office visits. Whereas for an abortion that takes a minimum of two, they only count it as one. So if you look at the number of quote-unquote people that they've, ser- that they've helped at Planned Parenthood, or they call it help, the number is infinitesimally small with regard to anybody who doesn't get anything for abortion. And now they've taken the, I think, strategic step. I don't like it, but I can't fault them for taking the step that they took. About 10 years ago, Planned Parenthood found a loophole in the states like California's constitution. California had a law that said that it was illegal for a state district to actually have curriculum where they taught sex education. However, if they used an outside affiliate to come in and teach that same course, parents would have no say in stopping them. Here comes Planned Parenthood all of a sudden say, we'll provide your sex ed classes. And the coursework immediately transitioned from being driven by, this is life science, biology, reproduction, this is where babies come from, to who wants whips and chains? We're going to teach you how to have kinky sex. In other words, as I was mentioning earlier, all the people with PhD and EDD and MA and MS and MD next to their names who were affiliated with this on the school level didn't get the memo. Or what's that? Uh, there's some hip-hop song that they use the uh, the chorus of over and over again on like TikTok videos where you have this girl saying, I understood the assignment. Planned Parenthood obviously did not understand the assignment. Or if they did, they changed it for their benefit. Planned Parenthood started popping up on school campuses all over the state of California, offering to teach sex education to kids. Basically, hi, we're Planned Parenthood. We'll get you on birth control that's pretty risky and probably won't work to prevent pregnancy. We'll encourage you then to use our bad condoms and to have as much sex as you want to because you're a human being and you can't control yourself. And then once our condoms and our birth control doesn't work, you should be able to come here without your parents knowing about it because we know the only reason that this happened to you is sexual assault. School districts signed off on it because Planned Parenthood gets big money from the federal government. Planned Parenthood then starts looking at ways to get their kids into their clinics. But that's the problem. Planned Parenthood ran into a bit of a roadblock with a number of parents who kept showing up and saying, hey, what are you doing to my kid? School districts would actually make it possible for a student to be able to get on a school district bus and be driven to a Planned Parenthood facility to have an abortion during school hours without parental notification. Every time parental consent laws would come up, the abortion lobby would fight hard to drive it down. So some genius at the Norwalk Lomrata Unified School District came up with an idea. Oh, I got it. Let's do this. What if we put the Planned Parenthood 
on the campus. Um, Now, they claim that Planned Parenthood's intention was never to go on the campus at John Glenn High School and establish an abortion clinic. In fact, the two concerns that parents had were, are you going to do abortions on campus and will you be doing cross-gender hormone replacement for trans-identified students? So far, it looks like that won't happen. The clinic would, if it did get approval, make referrals to other Planned Parenthood facilities for, as they put it, quote, services not offered at the school. However, now read between the lines here as we do a little analysis, balance, and clarity here. However, even though the proposed Planned Parenthood at John Glenn High School in La Mirada, Norwalk, would not perform abortions and would not do hormone replacement therapy for trans-identified students, the facility would be able to write prescriptions, I'm quoting them here, write prescriptions and dispense drugs related to reproductive health. They would also be able to insert non-surgical, long-acting, reversible contraceptives, including IUDs. They would also do physical examinations for the purpose of conducting tests to see whether or not a sexually transmitted disease would be found. The proposal from Planned Parenthood, using their quote, states, quote, uh, the clinic will encourage students to involve their families in decision-making regarding reproductive health services, but it also states that minors can consent to those services without parental consent or notification. The original contract proposed was scheduled to last five years and then could be renewed with board approval every five years after that. But a group called Parents Defending Education started showing up at the Norwalk La Mirada uh, school board meetings and they started protesting. As a matter of fact, last week when this was supposed to be voted on, more than 100 parents attended the board meeting. And there was a group of uh, uh, counter-protesters in favor of the Planned Parenthood clinic protesting across the street. But the idea that uh, basically parents defending education said families and taxpayers should be horrified that Norwalk La Mirada Unified School District is considering a partnership with Planned Parenthood. Other Planned Parenthood clinics continue ge- provide gender-affirming hormone therapy, so there's a very real possibility that students will be referred off campus to receive this treatment, again with per- no parental notification. And to add insult to injury, there's no way for parents to ever obtain this information, as their contract asserts that all medical records are to be maintained by Planned Parenthood, not district staff, not the parents, not the guardians, the school even would not have access to any of this. So whatever happened to the parents having primary responsibility for the parents being the ones? Well, let's take a look at what's happening on the legal front of this and find out why more and more parents are in fact speaking up. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. 
You're unlikely to surprise Brian Edgel. A real estate broker with a law degree, Capebright's smart choice home seller has sold over 400 homes, likely including one in your area. Brian's longevity in the real estate industry equips him to help you navigate tricky situations that a less experienced real estate agent might not have encountered before. Recently, a client needed to sell a home contained in a trust. With his legal background, Brian has written his own trust in the past. He's also been the successor trustee for his own parents, so he can easily explain all the confusing details to the client. Brian has sold homes in foreclosure for clients in bankruptcy. After 20 years of selling homes, Brian prefers to handle the process personally instead of handing off the transaction to an assistant because he knows how to communicate clearly to his clients, eliminating the stress of the unknown. Call Brian Edgel now for qualified guidance at only 2.9% total commission. 800-969-3992. Again, 800-969-3992. Or go to smartchoicehomeseller.com. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and we are rejoicing today that John Glenn High School in the Norwalk La Mirada Unified School District in Southern California, their school board has decided to postpone a discussion and a vote on a plan to open a Planned Parenthood clinic on campus. Now, the clinic ostensibly would only be for referrals and basic examinations, and they would not be performing abortions on campus per se, no surgical abortions anyway, but they would have a pharmacist on hand or someone who could write prescriptions, and those prescriptions would be for birth control pills, for uh, extended use IUDs, for uh, intrauterine devices for birth control. Ostensibly, there would also be condoms available for boys. But they would also write prescriptions for contraceptives, and that can also include RU486, the morning after pill, plan B, whatever you want to call it. A hundred parents showed up. They let their voices be heard, and the school board backed down for now. Now, this isn't the first time they've had a go-around like this in Southern California. Back in 2019, Assemblymember Jesse Gabriel of San Fernando Valley introduced something called AB 624, called the Pupil and Student Health Bill. That legislation would have required all middle schools, high schools, colleges, and even Christian schools to, are you ready for this, include a number of reproductive health care clinics on all school ID cards. Now, Gabriel called accusations that the bill was just advertising for abortion providers offensive, misleading, and flat-out wrong. And yet, the year before, when he ran for office, he was endorsed by Planned Parenthood of Los Angeles and received a $4,400 campaign donation from them during the campaign that successfully got him elected to the California State Assembly. Brothers and sisters, if you don't think this is happening at your kid's school, you're wrong. (laughs) Wake up. Grandma and Grandpa... If your grandchildren have questions about this, these are things that you want to find out about as well. God created physical intimacy, sexual gratification for procreation purposes, and also for mutual benefit. There are scores of books. There are oceans of ink spilled every year on the marital benefits of getting married and staying married in God's economy. Now, it doesn't happen for everyone, and I'm one of those people. I'm gratefully remarried now. And my wife and I are enjoying our our relationship and what God is renewing into our lives with the damage that was done in our hearts and our souls based on previous relationships. You can have that. Not suggesting that if you didn't get the first one right the first time, that there's no hope. There's always hope in the Lord. 
But thank the Lord for these parents who are showing up at the school board meetings, things you never thought you'd have to do, and just asking questions like, why are you putting an abortion clinic on my son's high school campus? Why are you giving my daughter access to the morning after abortion pill without me being notified about it? If something happens to her and something goes horribly wrong with her and whatever baby might be, you know, in there as well, that's my responsibility as a parent to make sure I do everything I can to protect them. And the good news is more parents are stepping up, and I'm thrilled. Download this article at thebottomlineshow.com or at rogermarsh.com. Share it with your friends and rejoice. Yeah, we can be shocked and appalled and horrified over what groups like Planned Parenthood want to do. But when God intervenes and parents take action, when good people of God step up and speak up for biblical truth, that's always good news. And that's the bottom line.